0: Good evening. Hey. Good evening. Welcome back. Mm-hmm, too. It's been over a month. But, uh, look forward to <coughs> carrying on. It's going to go into the end of mm-hmm. April, provided there's no more winter storms or any white stuff that falls from the sky. Mm-hmm. But that would be the, uh, the goal. And so uh, we're just going to um, read our text this evening as we carry on in Mark 4. I'm just going to do a quick, uh, small review of what we've uh, talked about so far with the Gospel of Mark, and then we'll unpack our section together. Um, Before we read, just an important reminder and something that uh, Reverend John preached on a couple weeks ago, every time we read the Word of God, God is speaking to us, every time, and that's an important reminder. Whether our week's been great, whether it's been awful, whether we've come tired tonight, or can't wait to get home at 10 o'clock and watch whatever sports game may be, who knows, the reality is we just want to pray that we will sit under the authoritative teaching of God's Word, knowing that it is He who speaks to us and that we would have ears to hear this evening. So let's read uh, Mark 4, verse 21 to 5, verse 20, but let's pray as we start. Lord, we come to you this evening, we ask that now you would allow us to receive from you as you speak. It is your word that you've given to us to study and to grow into fruitful discipleship, and so we ask now that you would speak and that we would be obedient by the power of the Spirit, in your name. Amen. Mark 4, 21. And he said to them, there's a lamp brought in to be put under a basket, or under a bed. as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, and the full grain in the ear. When the grain is ripe at once, he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. And he said, With what can we compare the kingdom of God? What parable shall we use for? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches. The birds of the air may make nests in its shade. With many such parables he spoke the word to them, as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples he explained everything. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving with the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat. So the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? And you still no faith? They were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Garrisones. When Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately they there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs. No one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. When we saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. Crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you done to me? Jesus said to the Most High God, I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs were feeding there on the hillside, and when they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. The unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs and the herd, numbering about two thousand, rushed down a steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. People came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. They began to beg Jesus to depart from the region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might go with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends, and tell them how much the Lord has done for you, and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Apocalypse, Apocalypse, Decapolis, sorry, how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. Once again, it's a few sections of the Gospel of Mark that we're going to look at tonight, but it'd be helpful just to remind ourselves what it is that we've seen so far with this Gospel. This is the shortest Gospel that we have in the New Testament, and the authorship, um, the reality that it's getting its name, the Gospel of Mark, is because it is written, according to church tradition, by John Mark. He was a student of Peter who would have received the gospel teachings from the Apostle Peter. And we also know in the book of Acts that he was the a counterpart and a ministry partner with the Apostle Paul and Barnabas. And so we see that taking place, that is the same John Mark. This book is written to a Gentile church in Rome in the 60s that is facing persecution under the Emperor Nero. So if you remember anything about history, Nero was not a good emperor. He persecuted the Christians. He lit the city on fire by the Christians burning alive. And so this this gospel is written to this particular audience. So here we see Mark telling the stories of Jesus as an evangelist, as a pastor, as a theologian, helping them be reminded of the story of Jesus, and ultimately what is called the gospel. Now the gospel means good news, but in the Roman world it had another meaning as well, which was an announcement of a kingdom. So whenever a new person came to, to reign as emperor, there was a gospel announcement associated with their coming to reign. And so Mark is writing to this particular church and to all who read this account after to remind them of the greatest gospel of all time the coming of the kingdom of God. From God's reign on earth, to would be perfect and it would be restored to the way that it was supposed to be. And so, if you're going to suffer for any gospel, this is the one to suffer for. Because it is the greatest gospel, and it comes, this kingdom of God comes through the person of Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God. Now, we said that there's different meanings associated with the title Son of God. The first thing we automatically think of is Jesus' divinity that God became flesh in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. However, Son of God was also a term used for Israel in the Old Testament. And so when we look at Jesus in the Gospels, he is doing everything that Israel could not do. All the laws that Israel could not keep, Jesus is fulfilling perfectly. The other thing is that Son of God was a term used for Adam. And so when we see Jesus living and teaching and and, and enacting his life in the gospel, we see him doing what Adam did not do. So he is the perfect Son of God. He is faithful Israel. He is faithful humanity. I remind you of this because as we see these gospel stories continue to unfold, we see Jesus fulfilling and being this person as he brings the promised kingdom of God. And so, one of the things we've seen so far is that a lot of Jesus' teaching about the kingdom has been through action not direct teaching. So a lot of his activities that take place already in Galilee, we learn about the kingdom and what it means. We learn about Jesus' identity through what he does. There's action, and we learn from it. But right now, we are in a section which is unique in Mark because it's actually outlining for us the context of Jesus' teaching in a more in-depth way than any other place in the gospel. And so the fact that that's happening means we need to be paying attention. Because it's not just active teaching where you're learning from behavior. It's direct discourse in which he's giving us instructions about who the kingdom is through Christ. So we need to listen. The other thing to be reminded about is in this section is the specific form of teaching which Jesus is engaging in. <clears throat> it's not just direct teaching But now he's moved from that, when he does do that, to a form of teaching called parables. And we said last time, parables is a way of (coughs) telling a story that's not true and using imagery from the earth to communicate heavenly things. So the kingdom of God is like... How can we compare the kingdom? It's like this. And so these parables are not direct teaching, but they give instructions... And truths about the kingdom, but not directly in your face. Now, why did Jesus move to that kind of teaching? Why did he do that? Well, we talked last time in Mark four, in verse twelve, Jesus says, to quote Isaiah, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. We talked last time about how parables are actually a form of judgment upon those who have not believed. There are many already, and we're only in chapter 4, that have heard Jesus' ministry, they've seen his teaching through action, yet they say, no, don't believe you're the Son of God, I'm not going to follow you, you're demon-possessed, religious thinkers already want to kill him. And so, as a way of judging them already, he removes truth from them. He removes truth from them. So, you don't believe, Heart and heart, therefore part of your judgment is to remove the truth from them. However, at the same time, the scriptures teach us that there will be those that despite not hearing this teaching directly and understanding it directly, will desire to know more, will seek to learn, and Jesus will explain it to them. And that desire and that reminder we see in Mark 4 is that that is because it is a gift from God. So you're going to see people that are going to say, nope, and they're already judged and Jesus takes away the truth from them and those who are learning and growing and desiring to know more and that itself is not because of their own merit but because of the gift of God that has been revealed and so that's an important thing to be reminded it. so that's a very very quick reminder of where we are in this section it is important and we want to continue to pray that God will help us understand these parables so the first one in the first parable in chapter 4 with an explanation of the parable of the soils, the sower why people respond to the gospel and why others don't and the forms in which that takes verse 21 now is the next parable which Jesus teaches some may have in your translation regarding a lamp under a basket but that's entitled perhaps that's what it is given in your translation I don't know but it's important to understand that this next parable It's not unrelated to the first. So it's not direct teaching, but the point is what's being said here is not direct indirectly related to the first. There's a connection. So if the first parable is describing the fact there's gonna be people that reject the gospel, but there's gonna be people who respond to the gospel, then verse 21 now we begin to see a parable which describes the responsibility that those who respond to the gospel have. And so, what's being described here? Well, those who have responded to the gospel through the grace and the gift of God of salvation given to them, now they have a lamp. They have a lamp which has been given to them. That lamp is the gospel. Jesus is the light of the world. The message of salvation, the message of the good news, of the kingdom of God coming to earth. And so we have been given that lamp. We have become the light of the world through that, the New Testament teaches. But then Jesus gives us instructions about what to do with that. Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? See, we've been given a gospel to shine and bring to the world. Jesus said he's going to make his disciples fishers of men, and part of going out and making disciples is sharing the gospel. But Jesus goes on to say something here which is very interesting. He asks the question: Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed? Implying, should a lamp be hidden. Now, what's that ultimately getting at? This gospel which not only has saved you, but now has been entrusted with the church to be going out into the world by the power of the Holy Spirit and God uses that proclamation to save people, is that something that the church and those who have been saved should simply just forget about or put on the shelf or hide? The answer is obviously no. But the question is, why would Jesus be asking this question? Well, if you're thinking pastorally of why would Mark remind the Roman church of this? Well, they face great persecution. Many of them may die for faith in the gospel, and so it may be tempting because of that hardship, because of that opposition, to say, well, I think the Christian life can be lived without me actually sharing the gospel. I don't actually need to go into my workplace or my neighborhood and actually open up my mouth and share the good news about Jesus. I can surely just get by and just live my life and kind of, you know, not make anything uncomfortable by sharing my faith. No. Well, Jesus, is that the point of the land? No. See, he's reminding us that those who have been saved are now called to be agents of the gospel. And guess what? That's a command. It's a command from the Lord who has saved us. It's not... Well if you feel like it and you really want to be someone who can go and make a difference go share the gospel no Jesus says go into the world and make disciples every single one of us is called to open our mouths and share the good news but let me ask you a question have you ever been afraid to share I can't I count on <coughs> way too many times we can be afraid there can be a fear but this Scripture reminds us that even though we're afraid, that fear is not an excuse for not carrying it out. Furthermore, it's logical not to share the gospel, because in verse 22 Jesus goes on to say, For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light." So even though this gospel which we have been saved by, even though some people may not even care about it, or it may seem small in the world's eyes, it's ultimately going to be the truth which is going to come and expose all things anything. So why would you try that? Why would you even try <coughs> to get rid of the very thing which is going to expose everyone and all of us? It makes no sense. So we are called to share the gospel, to shine the light, even though there may be fear, that is our responsibility. And ultimately, it's going to be the truth that exposes all things anyway. So why would we even try to Rationally, it makes no sense not to share. Anyone has fears, fear, so fear let hear? So, in light of that teaching, that reminder about us shining our light and sharing the gospel question we have to ask ourselves. One that I have to answer for myself and you have to answer for yourself. Are we shining our light? Are we sharing the gospel? And we said before there's it's important for us to be reminded about what sharing the gospel actually entails and looks like. You know it's not just saying well, you know, standing up in, in abortion or euthanasia debates. And I have a friend who wrote an article in the lot Citizen last week about euthanasia. That's definitely advocating for God's view on life, but is that sharing the full gospel? No. We need to talk about sin. That thing that no one wants to hear about. That thing that as soon as you talk about it, people will say, well, I think you're a pretty judgmental person. Thank you very much. Eat your lunch and shut up. Don't bring up that bad news. I'm not a bad news person. I'm an optimist. Ever had that happen? But despite that, that's part of the call. <coughs> that's part of the call. The bad news, but then the good news is that God sent a rescue plan, Jesus Christ, who was bringing the kingdom, who became flesh, perfect, divine incarnation, yet fully human, lives a perfect life, teaches us the ways of God, goes to the cross where he bears judgment upon himself for that we deserve, rises victorious, ascends into heaven, is reigning on the right hand of God already, and is going to come and make all things new. That's the good news. That's the gospel. That's what needs to be on our lips. Notice what Jesus doesn't say here. Shine your light, share the good news, and it's your responsibility convict the people about it no our responsibility alone in the salvation of others is to share the gospel people are going to reject go back to the first parable some are going to say nope don't want it at all some are going to be interested at the beginning and end up walking away and some will just have the character will come in and say well I love that more and there will be those that will respond and will believe. Why? Because the Spirit of God has worked in their life. He is the one who has opened their eyes, but has used you do, in the process of sharing the good news. That's a beautiful thing. It's a wonderful thing. So I call and challenge for all of us to share the good news, to share the gospel, and to use the lamp which has been given to us uh, with the way that it's recalled called to then going on in verse 24 and he said to them pay attention to what you hear the measure you use will be measured to you and still more will be added to you so not only is Jesus saying to those who have been saved and brought into the kingdom of God you have a responsibility now empowered by me to go out and share this good news to shine that light but then he goes on and says but as you people who are speaking and sharing the good news also make sure you're people who pay attention to what you hear Now, what are they hearing? They're hearing the teachings of Christ. Which, if you understand that Jesus is the Son of God, then it's not just the teachings of a a religious teacher, not just a Muhammad or a Gandhi or another one down the road, but if he is the Son of God, then what you are hearing is the very word and instruction of God. So pay attention to the words of God that you hear through Christ. And that's what's given to these disciples but if we the church thousands of years later that same instruction is given to us pay attention to what you hear and that doesn't mean you just find the bible with the red letter version which sometimes up for argument whether or not that should be red letter or not no the entire word of God is God breathed, the scriptures all of it and so part of our responsibility is not just to share the good news but to continue to be people who pay attention to the Word of God. And it doesn't just say, pay attention to what you read, but what you hear. Implying that if we're the people of God, we're called not just to share the good news, but we're called to be students of the teachings of the Word of God, and paying attention to it means hearing. There's a call to hear. So what does paying attention and hearing actually look like? Well, he goes on to say with the measure you use. If you're going to be people who grow in the knowledge of God through hearing the word of God and the scriptures of God, Jesus says you have to be people who use. It's possible for you to read the scriptures, hear the scriptures, and not engage in the use of the teaching. What is use in using the Scriptures? What does it mean to be a faithful disciple that not only speaks the Gospel, but continues to sit under the teaching of the Lord in the Word of God? Well, using means studying. Reading. We live in a nation in Canada where there's more Bibles that could ever be counted than some other countries but yet biblical literacy is one of its highest rates people don't understand So one of the ways that you're going to grow in discipleship is you have to be in it studying it reading it. Asking the Holy Spirit who has inspired to give you instruction and wisdom to sit under biblical teachers who can explain and teach the word of God to you. It's a labor. Man shall not live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. Do we believe that? I don't have time. I don't, I don't have time to do daily in the word. I don't have time for that, but I had time to watch the seven hours of Super Bowl, Super Bowl, three I don't have time for that, but I have time to finish <laughs> that show on Netflix. I'm not saying any of those things are bad or give them up. I'm just saying that there is a call as disciples of Christ to make sure our priorities are straight. And part of it is sitting under the word of God and <clears throat> instructing. And so we, we pray, teach us. You know, one of the Bible reading plans, it's in the newsletter every month. It takes a while to write all those verses out. Part of it is just getting a detailed, rhythm, diet of Scripture. From different sections of the Scripture that you can go through day by day. Whether you do all four every day or not. To help go through the counsel of God and the I was amazed to watch a video a couple weeks ago of now, I haven't the country. But there was a big ceremonial ceremony. Everybody was dressed up somewhere in Africa. I know that. And there was music and dancing and you think like it was a birthday party or something. Like it was just everyone was going crazy. But why were they going so crazy? Because that very day brought to the country was the Bible in their translation for the very first time. And they were eager to get one and to learn. And where's that, kid? <clears throat> so we pray, Lord, if this is our responsibility to not only share the gospel, but continue to be students of the word, and give me passion for the word. Forgive my ignorance, help me love it more, help me learn from you that I may use it. And part of the using isn't just reading, but praying, Holy Spirit, give me the strength now to do it. Give me the strength to live it out. Give me the strength to share it. Change me. Let this not just be an intellectual read. Don't want me just to tell you the gospel of Mark so I can go home and say, well, I knew more about Mark now. Let this change me. Let this be something that you use to make me fruitful. And then Jesus goes on with the promise. The more you use it, the more you study it, the more you study it in context and learn and, and divide the word properly, the more it will be added to you. What does that? Mean? The more you learn, the more you grow, the more you're in the word, and the Spirit of God is going to lead you deeper, take you deeper into biblical knowledge, take you deeper into the truth, take you deeper into knowing God and Jesus and the life of discipleship. but then if you don't use it, then the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away, what does that mean, well, even though you have the word of God, you hear it, and you don't use it, you're not studying it, you're not learning, you're not growing, you're not letting it guide you and shape you, then guess what? The promises, the wonder, the truth, the change, the transformation that's promised in here, you're not going to taste it. 2 Peter 1, Peter says, to continue to grow in the faith, lest you become ineffective with the Lord. That's a, that's a terrifying thought, being an ineffective disciple. So, so, First parable, responsibility that God has given to those who have been saved. Through repentance and trusting in Jesus Christ, you now have the privilege, the command, the gift to take the gospel to the world. And as you do that, you continue to be a student of the scripture yourselves. And as you continue to study more and more, you will grow. But don't expect spiritual growth if you're not using the word given to us. Now, in this parable, Jesus elevates Scripture in our life. And I say this because sometimes... Other disciplines, other practices can be practiced, but when scripture is neglected, even those disciplines that you're doing are still hindered. For instance, you can pray and pray and pray and pray, but if you're not in the scriptures, the very word of God is, is to guide our prayers, then it's kind of a one-way conversation things are not balanced properly so scripture above everything it reveals to us God reveals to us the gospel reveals to us the life and so this isn't a um, pastoral argument for me to to be in the word of God I come from Jesus himself so we may be challenged to, to listen and to learn the next parable. He said, The kingdom of God is if, if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, but once he puts in the sickle, then the harvest has come. So if the first parable talks about how Certain people will respond, others won't. The second talks about the responsibility that those who have responded to the gospel now have in sharing it and continuing to study the word of God. This particular parable helps describe the the nature of the growth of the kingdom and what the church should expect regarding that. So there's a few things to highlight. First of all, when it comes to the growth of the kingdom, the responsibility of, of humanity, of the church, in particular, is highlighted. The seed, the good news of the kingdom is scattered, and it's scattered by who? The man. So it's God's gospel, it's God's work of salvation, but yet he has ordained that the primary means in which the gospel goes forth to the world is through the proclamation through the mouths of, of men and women saved by Christ. That's part of us shining our light builds on the further the, the parable before it. So that's the responsibility. Sometimes I've talked to people who say, well, if God's going to save everybody he wants to save, why does it doesn't matter? Point of evangelism. Well, if God knows everything you need anyway, then why do you pray? If God is going to work everything out anyway, then he's your provider, then why work? All these things. They're instructions given by God. So if God's ordained it that way, we don't get rid of it. If this is the way he chooses to work and to use, then we honor that and we walk with his will and his strength, given by the Spirit. So, we have a responsibility. However, our responsibility only goes so far. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows he knows not how. Notice something here. The kingdom of God, as it is planted, there is never a point in which it is not growing. In some form or another, there is never a point in which the kingdom of God, God's perfect reign on earth, is not growing in some sense, in some way, towards the final coming of Christ. Which is great encouragement because sometimes people to look around at the world and say, Boy, I wonder if God fell off the throne today. This particular thing is happening. But, The kingdom of God is always growing and sometimes, and in many cases actually, the kingdom of God's growth will not be visible to our eyes. Notice, it's growing at night while the man is sleeping. So there's a wonderful truth where we go out and we proclaim the gospel and the spirit of God is working and working and working and changing hearts and changing lives and transforming people and we can't see it. whether it's a pastor preaching from the pulpit, and as the Word of God is being preached, hearts are changing, hearts are awakening, lives are being transformed, whether it's, you know, you're ministering ministering to your children and you're sharing the good news, and you may not see anything happening, but the Spirit of God could be doing something. So that's part of the sharing the gospel. A lot of stuff we don't get to see. But we still are called to do it. Often had peop- people, and even my own family, say, Well, no, we've shared that message with that person 55 times, nothing's happened. Well, you have no idea what's happening in the invisible situation right now. You have no idea what the Spirit of God is doing. So continue to keep feeling your responsibility and leaving the rest to the Spirit of God. promise is that as God works even the invisible there will be a harvest and you will see fruit come fruit bit by bit people that are saved friends that come trust in the Lord Jesus Christ family members my own parents my own grandparents spent a long time preaching to me the gospel for many years Believe me, it was not a positive response. There was an invisible work of the Spirit. And so we celebrate the fruit, we celebrate the lives that are transformed, we celebrate those who come to trust in the saving work of Christ, and we give thanks because he is the one who has called him, he deserves all. Of course, one day we know that the the fruit, the harvest, will be visible to all because one day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. We will see the fruit when God reveals the fruit. Even in my own life, too many times I want to see the fruit. I need to see the fruit to keep going. To see the fruit to believe that God's doing something. I need to see the fruit to think that God may be empowered and be reminded that our call is to share the good. The fruit will often shock us. That person? That person trusted in Christ. There's nobody that person trusted in Christ. We even see this so far in Gospel of Mark. Jesus, yes, there's tax collectors home. Those people, those dirty, rotten sinners, no no. And then the Pharisees, they're left on the outside. Here in verses 30 to 34, the next parable, the parable of the mustard seed. It said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? What parable shall we use for it? It's like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches. so The birds of the air can make nests in its shade. Now, when I was in Israel, I did have the opportunity to have some mustard seeds, and they are tiny seeds. It's insignificant. It could easily be lost. In fact, I had about 15 in my shoe when I got home. Not knowing they were even there. Insignificant. Just blow away with the wind. it grows up to be the largest more than any of the garden plants. So an important reminder about the growth of the kingdom. People are going to treat the kingdom as if it's insignificant. People are going to treat Jesus as if he's insignificant. In our country, in the community, no, 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 no church is on the decline, Christianity is on the decline no, you're one of those narrow-minded people you don't believe in abortion or euthanasia just all those things, no, no, no and it it may look it may look like the church is losing in the culture's eyes Jesus is reminding us guess what, the kingdom is something that grows and it starts off looking very insignificant but it grows and it grows and it grows and one day it will be the largest of all kingdoms and a refuge for many. And that's the problem, you know. In Canada especially, there's this talk about what's wrong with the Canadian church. Everything's on the decline. Things churches are closing, the kingdom's somehow decreasing. Well no, it's always growing. And the promise is that one day from every tribe and tongue, God's kingdom will be fully on earth as it is in heaven. And there'll be more people than we can ever count. From every nation and tongue. A refuge. the growth of the kingdom there's something else to note here and it may be something which is quickly overlooked but it's important Jesus is not talking about the full arrival of the kingdom these are parables which are talking about the growth so what to expect as you're going out and you're sharing the gospel as you're sitting under the authoritative word and growing this is what you should expect about the kingdom of God and its growth notice who comes and, and makes refuge and fights nests in the shade of the branches, the birds. <coughs> now, we're thinking, okay, we've seen this image before, I hate birds, please don't go into this. That being said, go back to Mark 4, verse 4, the first parable. Once again, it's the parable of the sower, and it's, res- it's talking about the response of why... Some people don't respond to the gospel. Jesus is explaining the battle that it is for faith. And he sowed some seed along the path, and the what came and devoured it? Birds. birds. So already, even in Jesus' own teaching, these birds and the growth of the kingdom has a significance. So if you ever thought birds are evil, here is the first place in scripture we can say yes, Indeed. Because here the birds are the very things which are working to devour and oppose the proclamation of the gospel. What's an important kingdom growth lesson to learn here? In the midst of the kingdom of God growing there is a war. There's a war. Satan and the demonic until the full kingdom of God comes we saw this in Revelation are going to be fighting and making refuge and taking shelter in the very midst of the saving work and guess what? Jesus himself taught us that so we can't ever say boy I really don't like this battle with the enemy thing well guess what? it's not matter if you like it or not Jesus said it's going to happen the gospel goes forth. And let me just ask you a question. Have you ever been involved in gospel ministry, whether it's in, in the coffee shop or school or whatever it may be, and God's doing great things, and all of a sudden it's just like the enemy is just knocking on the door harder than ever before? Or something happens, and you're like, well, that's interesting. What's going on? We have enemies that comes and he wants to steal your joy. He wants to devour and, and rob and steal and all these things. And you just to say, expect a battle. Which is why in Ephesians um, 5, the Apostle Paul says to make sure you put on the armor, of power. To make sure you are walking in the power given by the Spirit of God. And so I say that to encourage all of you. In whatever aspect of ministry or gospel sharing you're involved in, know that there is a war. We've overcome, but there's a battle. There's opposition. So, the section of parables from chapter four one to verse thirty-two. A reminder, these are not actual historical stories, they are stories that are told to help compare the kingdom of God to images and things that people would understand. They're a way of removing the direct truth from people who have already not believed in the way of the Spirit bringing people in to learn deeper and investigate more for those to be kind of saved through the gift of God. be people who can respond to the Gospel, be people who aren't. Those who respond have a responsibility to share, have a responsibility to continue to grow under the Scriptures. The reality of the growth, our responsibility is to share it, the rest is in the Spirit's hands, He is the one who convicts and so there will be much invisible work we won't even see but we release it to him, and one day we will see harvest grow bit by bit. And though it may seem insignificant, even though a church may seem insignificant in a community, nowadays the reality is the kingdom will go forth. but don't think it will be without any kind of opposition. There is a bow. And so that, with many such parables, he spoke the word to them. Mark records those for us, as they were able to hear, which, of course, is a work of the Spirit. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples he explained everything. So now we go on to verse 35. We move from parables back to active teaching. The end of verse 35 to the end of chapter 5, we're going back to active teaching. So we're learning again through seeing what Jesus does, the stories, the examples, about the kingdom and about who he is and about who we're called to be in the gospel and all these truths through learning through the story. So it's not a uh, discourse as it was in this case. So on that day when evening had come, he said, let, let us go across to the other side. Now this has happened many times. Jesus has been traveling in the region of Galilee. It's the Sea of Galilee. It's a way of transporting The disciples over to the place where they are serving. It's 240 villages in Galilee, 15,000 people in each. It's a large region. And so leaving the crowd where he had been speaking the parables to, they took with him Jesus in the boat where he was teaching from, and the crisis takes place. A great windstorm arose. Now, the Sea of Galilee, I'll give you the exact dimensions. One second. It's not a large sea, it's often called a lake. 13 miles long at its longest and 8 miles wide. So it's not a large, large area. And often big storms would come. Remember swimming in the Sea of Galilee a couple of evenings and even the waves itself getting quite large. It's, it's an area where great storms can come, and it's an area where fishermen, like, like a good majority of these disciples who have already been called, would be well familiar with the reality of those challenges. But here, Mark says, it's a great windstorm, and this great windstorm was causing waves so large to break into the boat, and the boat was already filling. And we know that it was a terrifying storm, and that these experienced fishermen who had endured many storms before were afraid because they go to Jesus in verse 38 and said do you not care for perishing so there's some things to learn from this particular story first of all the disciples actions once the storm takes place it has come they see the waves coming into the boat Jesus is asleep What do they do? They accuse Jesus of not caring about them. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Now, there's a great irony in that question because he is a son of God who has come to save them. And they're saying, don't you care that we're perishing? So they began to question and attack Christ and his love for them. Now you may say, well, these disciples are kind foolish. Well, let me ask own question. How many times can we be these disciples? When trials come, when tragedies come, when things come our way, and we think, Lord, do you really, don't you care? You see how hard the situation is, you see how tough these particular child may be, and now there's more. It's it's, it's if you don't even care about me, or you're not hearing or not listening. That can happen. The other thing that's being displayed here, not just an accusation of Jesus and whether he cares about them or not, but they are people who are not trusting in his word. What did he say at the beginning, verse 35? Let us go to the other side. He said, we're going to the other side. And here they are in the storm, and all of a sudden they're thinking, did Jesus really mean that? Is he re- are we really going to get over there? Because we're just seeing a bunch of waves come into the, the boat right now, I and mean, it's already filling, and I think we're going to die. So they were an example of disciples who heard, but yet didn't believe what Jesus had said and that's the other part if we're going to be people who are students of church that are students of the word of God and sitting under the teaching of the scriptures we pray that we don't just read and, and hear but we believe what it is that Jesus has taught them. they called him teacher they had heard his words but yet they didn't still trust him they were afraid full of fear ever had situations. I know I've had situations, and I think we're lying if we don't say we've had situations because no one has ever had perfect trust in Christ until they're fully glorified and with Him. Are you afraid? Even though God's words call us not to be Called him a teacher, but yet we don't fully trust in his words. If anything, the disciples' actions are a strong example of what it means to be a disciple on this side of heaven. There are days where things we just may not trust, we might just fail, we might just fall down, we just might completely think this is chaos and we're going to Doesn't walk away from you. doesn't say, You foolish people, I'm done with you. He rebukes them, but he doesn't say, I'm done with you. There's sort of perseverance. So then, for those are the disciples' actions, what do we learn from Jesus' actions here? Well, if he is human, He is not just divine, but if he is also fully human, then this is a very good example of his humanity in a couple of ways. Mark's gospel emphasizes the humanity of Jesus more than any other gospel in the New Testament. Here we see it. He's he's had a long day of teaching, and guess what? Now now it's time for a nap. He's tired. you ever had that moment where you've had such a deep sleep and there was a storm happening outside? You woke up and you thought, What happened? Puddles outside, you wake up and there's fifteen centimeters of snow, wherever it may be. You're so tired. Well, this is one of those kind of naps for Jesus. He's had a a tiring day and he's sleeping. Sleep on the cushion. Had to be woke up. But there's another way in which his humanity is described here, not just his humanity and the fact that he's tired, but if Jesus is the Son of God, in the sense, Adam is Son of God, if he is faithful humanity, then here we see an example of what actually true humanity is to look like in the midst of storms of life. There's a storm going on, there's crisis outside, and he's sleeping some scholars call this the sleep of faith he's at peace he's showing us what our relationship to God is supposed to look like yeah God there's this storm outside everything's going wrong but I trust you I'm just going to sleep we see that example in Acts 12 where, where Peter he's been arrested James already had his head chopped off Peter's got a guard here and a guard here and he knows the next thing he's going to trial he's probably going to be James but what does Luke say? Sleeping. It's a peace. It's a trust. It's a faith, which Jesus goes on to say. Why don't you have that? This ultimately what humanity and the people of God are to look like. And so we pray for that. We're to become like Jesus. We pray. God, give me, give me the peace and the trust in you that no matter what the diagnosis is no matter how hard home may be no matter how hard work may be no matter how hard family may be whatever may be help me just be able to trust you that when i go home i can lay my head down and sleep and trust that your providence your faithfulness you got it you got it it's wonderful but that's got to be a work of the spirit in us But Jesus demonstrates that. They were much to learn from it. So he rebukes them for the lack of faith and trust in God in this way. And then in verse 39, he wakes up and rebukes the wind and says to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Now, if Jesus' humanity is described here, then also his divinity, which goes hand in hand with his humanity, is also described. Because in the Psalms, one of the things, the characteristics of the description of God in the Psalms is he is the one who calms the waves of the sea. So here he is enacting out the very description of God, even in the Old Testament. And he's showing that he is the creator. And creation obeys. The disciples are crying out, using multiple words to communicate to their teacher that he doesn't care about them. And here the creator of the universe gets up and says to the raging sea, peace, peace. Be still. It's the creator. And ultimately it's a reminder of what the gospel is all about. He's come to bring peace to creation all well, creation, if all creation obeys him, he says to the wind and the waves, stop, and they're silent. <laughs> well then, humanity, how much more should you be listening? And so it's a reality of people coming to coming <clears throat> under the obedience of Christ. And if he is the creator, he is the one who is willing to be obeyed. Filled with great fear, who then is this? So it's still not a complete understanding of who Jesus is, really. No, this is not a typical rabbi. It reveals the majesty of God. I don't know if you've ever. I don't know if you're the kind of person that gets in the car and drives and there's a thunderstorm and just watches the lightning and listens to the thunder and sees the majesty of God on display knowing that every single thing has at his word and his direction. I remember being in a plane when that was happening thinking that's not really fun. But yet, the only comforting part about that was knowing that I know the one who has (laughs) control over the whole universe so this plane is going to be alright no matter what happens. But wonderful, wonderful truth. This is who the one who loves us could have just rejected us. Could have just said, yeah, you walked away from my plan, so adios. But i the gospel is he comes, he comes flesh. He teaches us about the kingdom and he comes to rescue. So don't you, do you care that we're actually perishing? Oh yes. Oh Yes that is why he's come to rescue and to redeem chapter 5 verse 1 they came to the other side of the sea to the country of the garrisons now Mark doesn't say this and wasn't around then but I'm sure that if they came to that particular moment there would have been a song something like great is thy faithfulness being sung <laughs> God be the glory or kissing the ground whatever it may be but chapter 5 verse 1 is a, a bookend to what's just taking place here in this passage God through Christ kept his word verse 30 five. we're going to the other side chapter 5 verse 1 they went to the other side one day church When it comes to discipleship, you're going to be in the kingdom of God with Christ, standing at the finish line, the the race having been finished, the prize of eternal life having been won. But until then, it might be a bumpy ride. In fact, it will be. But yet God's faithfulness to us will be faithful to complete the work he has begun in us celebrate that faithfulness. Then that's verse 1 and verse 2. Steps out of the boat and then immediately, well there's Mark's quick language again, describing another active story right away. Immediately they met him out of the tombs, a man with unclean spirit. Now, understanding that Jesus is a Jew, that he was faithful to keep the law. There is great concern, obviously, if you get off a boat and you're approached by a man coming from tombs. Death. Unclean. Definitely not in line with the Jewish law. So what are you gonna do? Well there's some things here described about Jesus' gospel saving work with this particular individual, and it's important because there's some truths that are highlighted that we want to note. First of all, the work of a demonic and Satan is highlighted in this passage. First thing we want to learn about Jesus' ministry is that he's tending to those who have been defaced by the enemy. This particular man is evil. He is broken, he is harmful, and so one of the work of the enemy is to come and to face God's creation. Jesus says the enemy comes to kill and steal, even though he appears as an angel of light, even in the garden he seems so wise, no, you won't die if you do that even in deception he comes to steal and destroy and so all the brokenness we see in our world all the, the pain and the disaster and the viruses and all these things that are taking place, they're all a result of sin they're all a result of evil and it's the enemy's plan and tactic against God's people he delights to do it, in fact the evil spirits they go on in verse 7 crying out with a loud voice he said, what have you done to me Jesus, Son of the Most High God, I adjure you by God, do not torment me. Well, how is he being tormented? Because Jesus was saying to him, come out of the man. So the very thought of not being able to even deface and, and, and torment and destroy God's creation was an act of torment for those who are the demonic and Satan. God hates sin. Satan loves sin. Loves to destroy, loves to deface. In fact, Satan's tactics of, of destroying God's creation is seen that he would rather go and at least destroy a bunch of pigs because he could at least destroy something that belongs to God. Just At le- least let me do that. Don't torment me by not letting me destroy anything. So Satan comes. thing here is they're enslaved, sinful humanity because of this defacing, because of this destruction by the enemy, they are enslaved, now he's enslaved, he's enslaved by his spirit, but yet technically there's still a freedom that he has people can't bind him, they're trying to, but he can still walk around in freedom in some sense, there's still some kind of freedom there but yet he's still fully enslaved by the demonic. You know, the sinful humanity, there's a freedom. There's a freedom in which you can you can wake up, you can have your Cheerios, you can go to the grocery store, you can do all those things, but the reality is, even though that freedom to wake up, if you are apart from Christ and in sin, you're still a slave. Still enslaved to the, to, to Satan, still enslaved to sin, you're still ultimately enslaved, even though there be, appears to be some kind of freedom there. You're still a slave, and ultimately Christ is the only one who can set you free from that slavery. Some demonic possession looks much more evident than others. Here, clear, well, that guy is very upset, and, and, and can't be tamed, and all these things. Clearly he's demonic, yet, there's another form of demonic possession and being enslaved being a slave of sin that comes up later But the herdsmen they want Jesus to go because their whole economy is thrown out so whether or not their, their god is idolatry and is, is is the money or it's demonic possession that's up front and in your faith the reality is both are still enslaved by Satan and the deception work of the enemy is making you think that there are certain forms of enslavement and other forms aren't. To make you think that Hitler is more enslaved to Satan than a little kid who wasn't trusted in Christ stealing cookies out of the cookie jar. <coughs> Depravity. So there's different, different expressions of all one slavery, and so that's important to note. So the work of the enemy in defacing humanity, is the condition, of sinful humanity and that's part of the news the bad news that we share with the gospel go down to the coffee shop or you're talking to your friend who hasn't trusted in Christ the bad news is all of creation has fallen we're all defaced by the work of the enemy which we've, we've cooperated with and we're all slaves we're all slaves when he Christ has set us free so then the nature and work of Christ what does he do? he comes to destroy the work of the devil he comes and he casts out the the legion, the many demons. He overcomes. And that is the work of the gospel. He comes to destroy the one who has destroyed. To overcome and to redeem. What's, this guy who is demon-possessed, he's left with the right mind, and, and he's, he's sober and, and all these things, and that's a complete transformation. There's a healing that takes place. The moment we believe, Christ heals us of that being enslaved to sin. We are free. The chains are broken. We We are free to walk and become who we were created to be, Christ leading us. So he comes and he overcomes the enemy. We see another thing here which might not initially be grasped, but it's important to highlight. We see the elevation that Jesus has for humanity over the rest of creation. Say, well, how do you see that? Well, he permits and allows legion demons to go into the pigs. Hundreds of pigs die for this man to be healed. Now, where Pete is crawling up my neck, the reality is that's not saying that Jesus thinks that creation, animals, all those things should be abused or whatever. Obviously there's a created food order that's in creation. God loves all of creation. But what is being said here is that Jesus did not come ultimately to save animals from sin. It is the gospel that he came to save humans. I had a conversation with a friend a couple months ago that was asking whether or not dogs had to be saved. Or animals had to be saved or what not. No. Why did Jesus become human? Because humanity had to be saved. Because humanity is the only part of creation that is made in the image of God. The only part. So he comes to save. Now, here's an expression of sin in the world. When people care more about animals they do about humans, that is an expression of the enslavement and depravity of sin. I know someone, for instance, that will weep and weep and weep over the the, the slaughtering of whales at a certain part of the world, and would gladly be the first person to go to an abortion clinic on on a Monday morning. No problem. What's going on there? Well, there's an elevation of things that had not meant to have been elevated. Who does God care about most? Who has a soul? Who rebelled against him? Who was made in his image? It's humanity. So we need to understand that's that's God's design. And even Psalm eight talks with us. Who is son of man that you care for? Elevated. So it's important to understand that humanity has Infinite worth in the eyes of God. He cares but all creation, but the gospel came to set humanity free. And by that all creation will be restored as well. Now the pigs go into the sea which is symbolic, because in the scriptures the sea is the place of evil, so they go back to the very place they belong. The pigs themselves are unclean animals, and so for the unclean to be sensibly unclean it's fitting which imagery to be said there. And the response, how do people respond to the work of Jesus? Well, the man who was healed, set free, wants to go and be with Jesus, and Jesus sends him out to go and tell friends and community of how much the Lord has done for you. For he has had mercy on you. So here we see testimony. Going out and sharing the freedom that God has given. Testimony. And he goes and he listens. Ultimately, the saving work of Christ, the good work of Christ in our life is, is not to be kept silent. And that goes back to the very first parable we started with tonight. You have a lamp, you have a light, go and shine it. Go and make it known. But then there's those, the herdsmen, who asked Jesus to leave the region because the pigs were their entire Jesus teaching, Jesus, 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 just makes life uncomfortable, it disturbs things, it makes things messy, it's better if Jesus just is kept out of the picture. Workplaces may think, well, things are going to go really smooth for you, if you just keep Jesus out of the picture. Or family celebrations and reunions, whatever it may be, just don't bring up your Jesus talk why? because people are enslaved to sin they love their sin I don't want to not be in control, I don't want to stop bowing down to these things because I love them so much and so I tell Jesus to leave Praise the Lord that we are people who not tell Jesus to leave. By God's grace we have received those sections in gospel of mark the parables the active stories with the storm the healing of the man with the demon they all communicate the truths about the kingdom of god the arrival of the kingdom our responsibility jesus nature the reality of sin the reality of the enemy who enslaves people and it continues to work against the advancement of the gospel prayer is that we would ask the Spirit of God to help us truly hear and be reminded and empowered to do what it is He's calling us to do. We live in a neighborhood, a town, a country where there's enslavement, people are enslaved to sin, where there's the call to go out and share the gospel, and though many will reject, many will respond. And so may God give us the grace and the strength. To, to shine that light and to be that angel of the gospel. So let pray that for us and these important truths about the gospel would resonate with us tonight. Father, we thank you for your word and we know that Lord, it is a privilege to gather and study your word knowing that you speak to us. and We're thankful for the gospel. We're thankful for the kingdom announcement. You are the King of Kings who has come to make all things new and restore the world to the way it was created to be. You extend to those who trust in your name and believe and repent the gift of eternal life. And as those who have received it, Lord, we are reminded tonight of our responsibility to share it and make it known to claim the good names. And as we do, help us be disciples who are students of your word. Help us use it that we may grow in the knowledge of our salvation you've given to us. Help us be students. Help us be empowered to keep it. Help us share it and proclaim it to others. So we pray for that fruitful study of your word. Lord, we ask for forgiveness for the times that we have shared the gospel and the thought that you weren't working for young people who need to see or want to see proof for you, to, us to believe that you're doing anything we know that your word teaches us that our responsibility is simply to be the, the mouthpiece that share the truth of the gospel and that your spirit works and so help us to trust that as we speak your spirit is working in the invisible that one day we will continue to see fruit arise. But Lord, help us continue to press on and labor on the power of the Spirit, even when we don't see that fruit right away. We thank you, Lord, that though there are many that treat the gospel and the kingdom as insignificant, that we have family members and friends and community members that simply think we're crazy. We th- we're thankful for the promise, Lord, that your kingdom will go forth unhindered, that one day it will be Fully on earth as in heaven and be a refuge for the nations. But until then we know that the enemy will work. We'll seek to fight. And so we pray that you help us be empowered to engage in that battle, knowing that as your gospel goes forth, the enemy will work. Help us be aligned with the truth of overcoming in you and recognizing when attacks come, recognizing the enemy is at work against your kingdom. Lord, the story of the storm teaches us important truths about us and you. And so we pray, Lord, we acknowledge that we are disciples of the storm. There are times when we do not trust your word. We hear it, but we don't trust it. Lord, when trials come, we can quickly question your character and your heart for us. Lord, we ask that you allow us to trust him your example as you produce in us a, the ability to trust the ability to sleep the sleep of faith where we can just rest in the providence and the faithfulness of our God you're the creator who is worthy of being obeyed and so may we be faithful in creation and continue to submit to your voice but we're mindful of the depravity of sin and the brokenness of sin the reality of being enslaved yet to be free and how you come and address that right head to head the beauty of the gospel. We thank you that you overcome, we thank you that you set free, we thank you that you love humanity that became flesh in order to redeem the people unto yourself. As those who have been redeemed help us go now and share the testimony of your grace with all those who you would give us the opportunity to do so. We would we'll be thankful or thank you for the study continuity as a house with Christ.